Well, um, welcome everyone. Um, thank you all for coming this evening. My name is Professor Matthew Jones. I'm head of the International History Department at the LSE. And this is the launch event for the Paulson Foundation project on Imperial Russian history. Um, I say this is the official launch. In fact, the project is already up and running. If you look at the International History Department's website, you'll see that there are already um, fellowships and conference grants available for young scholars um, to apply for, and some of the first monies that come through, through these grants have been awarded already. And this is really down to the generosity of the Frederick Paulson Foundation, which provided the funds to allow the project to start. And the aim of the project is to promote the scholarship on Russian imperial history, particularly young Russian scholarship, which focuses on the place of Russia in the world. And in many respects, then, this is a story of transformation that people are investigating. The transformation that tells the story of how a supposedly backward country in the Western imagination, a country associated with endless steps of wilderness, of remoteness in a word, became fully modern, a modern world power by the early 20th century, having been instrumental in the, in the defeat of Napoleon, accepted as a member of the Concert of Europe, had carved out a vast multinational empire and developed a high literary and artistic culture and, of course, the story of how it went toward Germany in 1914 as a member of the Entente powers. Now, the project itself involves the distribution of fellowships to allow travel by young Russian scholars to foreign archives to do their research work. It involves the distribution of monies for conference grants to enable those young Russian scholars to attend conferences overseas, and money to fund seminars and workshops to discuss the work of, of, uh, on Russian scholarship um, on the imperial period as well. The project will place special emphasis on Russia's relations with the external, as I've said, meaning traditional themes such as diplomacy and war will be featured, but also exploration and geographical studies, studies of empire and its management, and of art and culture and its transnational importance. Now, to elucidate these great themes of the project, we have a very distinguished panel to turn to. All three are directly involved with the management of the project in one form or another. And first of all, to my immediate left, is Professor Dominic Leland. Uh, Dominic is a senior research fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, and fellow of, British, uh, fellow of the British Academy. But he was also a member of staff, of course, here at the LSE for many years, joining uh, the school in 1978. He rose to become head of the government department between 2001 and 2004, and head of my own international history department between 2009-2011. Among his numerous works of um, Russian history, I just want to mention his two most recent books, Russia Against Napoleon, The Struggle for Europe, 1807-1814, which was published in 2009, and most recently, Towards the Flame, Empire War and the End of Tsarist Russia, published in 2015. And Chai will explore um, Russian policy in the imperial period and its relevance for uh, today. Secondly, we have Professor Janet Hartley. Of course, Janet's familiar to many of you here. She's a historian of 18th and early 19th century Russia, particular interests in Anglo-Russian relations, the social and administrative history of the Russian Empire, and the relationship between warfare, state, and society during Russia's rise to great power status. She joined, she joined the LSE back in 1987, was pro-director of research here between 2008 and 2013, and she was my predecessor as a head of department 
the International History Department between 2015 and 17. Her most recent works include Russia, 1762 to 1815, Military Power of the State and the People, published in 2008, and Siberia, the History of the People, published in 2014. Now, thirdly, the only member of the fact of the platform party who hasn't been a member, of, uh, hasn't been head of the international history department, <laughs> but there's always time, uh, is um, <laughs> Professor Alexander um, Simeonov. Um, he is professor of history and founding chair of the Department of History, National Research University at the High School of Economics in St. Petersburg, and founder and director of the Centre for National Research, of historical research. Sorry, he is the historian. Of, he's a historian of modern Russian history whose research interests include political and intellectual history, history of empire and nationalism. He also works in the emerging field of global history and the dialogue between new imperial history and global history. He's published on intellectual and political history of Russian liberalism and liberal imperialism, the history of political reforms, revolutions, and the first Russian parliament in the early 20th century, history of Russian social sciences and their global connections. He's co-founder and member of the editorial board of the International Quarterly Journal, Ab Imperio, studies of new imperial history and nationalism in the post-Soviet sphere. His current publications include How Five Empires Shaped the World and How This Process Shaped Those Empires, from Ab Imperio. And he's also co-authored the two-volume New Imperial History of Northern Eurasia. So the organisational panel is going to go like this. Each of our um, speakers will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes on an aspect of the project and their interests in it, and then we'll open um, the floor up for discussion and questions. And once we finish that, we can all retire to outside this theatre to have some refreshments. So if I can turn, first of all, to Professor Levan. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's fun to be back. I was here for 33 years. Uh, so LSE means rather a lot to me. Um, good to see lots of old friends in the audience. Obviously, thanks also to the school for acting as headquarters, both for this evening and for the project. Above all, thanks to Frederick Paulson for providing the funds which enable us to do our best to help Russian historians of the 17th, 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries. What I said I would talk about today was the usefulness for policymakers and for genuinely intelligent, interested, but not specialist public opinion to know something about the history of imperial Russia. And I do that, I chose that theme, partly because this is, after all, LSE. Many of you are not historians. Many of you are not Russianists. So trying to give some kind of sense of how, you know, what for us is an academic passion does also have some value outside our little world. I thought that would be interesting for you. And it is also a sort of trip down nostalgia lane because what, in a sense, I will just be talking about is my own experience in those seven years before the end or eight years before the end of the Cold War when, somewhat to my bewilderment, I became involved in the world of policymaking. To understand what I'm going to talk about, you have to remember that when Margaret Thatcher became head of the Conservative Party, she really knew very little about foreign policy. She had instincts, most of them deeply anti-communist, but she was essentially turned into the Iron Lady by two people, 
Professor Leonard Shapiro of this institution and Professor Hugh Seaton-Watson of the School of Slavonic Studies. Leonard was my academic grandfather. When I was appointed in 78 to LSE, I was appointed to take over and run his programs, together with my friend and colleague Peter Redaway, much senior to me. Hugh Seaton-Watson was my supervisor. Now, the world of British... Russian studies in those days, certainly of Russian history, was extremely tight. My parents had known not just Leonard, but his wife, Lolita de Madariaga, long before I was born. The same was true of Hugh Seaton Watson, whose sister worked with my dad in the B, etc., etc., etc. A lot of these connections went back to intelligence in the Second World War and therefore were particularly tight. My dad was everything that Soviet propaganda ever said about those who ran British foreign policy, etc. Sietleshiknyaz, figure from the old white emigration, former officer of British intelligence and head of the Russian service of the BBC, firstly directly, then indirectly. It was a complete mafia. That didn't necessarily make my relationship with Hugh as a supervisor that easy. Hugh didn't much like students to the extent he liked any student. I suppose he just about liked me. He freely said he was no good at teaching. He was um, disconcerting, it might be said. You had one supervision a term, and it wasn't that Hugh looked out of the window and was clearly not paying much attention to what you might be saying. It was the fact that he was looking out of the window with such absolutely fixed attention and interest. Nothing, of course, in any way connected to anything you might ever be saying. It took me two whole years as a PhD student to summon up the courage to ask another of the professors what was going on. That was dear Olga Crisp, who replied to me, Oh, didn't you know, Hugh is a passionate ornithologist. He's looking for birds in the trees. <laughs> He'd actually put his office opposite the biggest tree in the neighbouring county. You know. um, but I came to have not just great respect for him as a scholar, he was a wonderful scholar, um, but also actually in time great affection for him. And when Paul Leonard died in 83, Hugh put me on these committees. One was Margaret Thatcher's little foreign policy advisory committee. There were six of us chaired by a Hugh Thomas, Spanish Civil War Thomas. And the other was a remarkable committee of the former bosses of British intelligence, essentially, chaired by the former boss of the Joint Intelligence Committee of the state, former British military and naval intelligence, Thompson, who they lent to the Americans in Vietnam, uh, and the ex, you know, MI5, MI6 people, etc. I mean, the most exciting moment on that committee was when the IRI decided to blow us up. They put a bomb under the lectern. Uh, and... For all sorts of reasons, it didn't blow up. But had it done so, an additional source of sadness would have been that amidst that galaxy, I wouldn't even have got a... I wouldn't have, said, wouldn't have got a notice, let alone an obituary. We had got the GOC in Northern Ireland, and we got the boss of the um, Commissioner of Metropolitan... No, of Scotland Yards. Yeah. So, I mean, they had some reason to blow us up, apart from innocent out, you know, outsiders like me. As for the Thatcher's committee, I suppose the most interesting... There were lots of interesting moments. Um, but possibly the most interesting one of all was having lunch with her just in a tiny group of four uh, the day after she was kicked out when she said things we sh she would never normally have said. And you got a sense, apart from anything else, of just what guts it had taken for a woman of that background to become head of the Tory party. I was of absolutely no importance, but it was a very fascinating way to look at those last years of the Cold War. And because I was LSE, politics, Russia, and because I was on these committees, I was endlessly in the media. 
So this has been a very long introduction to saying that what I needed to do was develop some kind of sense of where those, or where Gorbachev's reform efforts and the obstacles they were likely to, to, to face fitted into a broader understanding of Russian history and to produce that in a way in which you could explain it, as I say, to top policymakers, but also to an informed public. I think in a way being a historian and being a historian of imperial Russia was enormously useful. I think, and this is a horrible thing to say, um, it was a better background than actually being a Western Sovietologist proper. Partly because Western Sovietology did not always shine by having a great imagination. Secondly, because it knew nothing about didn't know much about pre-1945 Russia, certainly didn't know anything about pre-1917 Russia. And after all, in those last years of the Soviet Union, the great questions of Russian history came back on the agenda, somewhat to Gorbachev's bewilderment. And actually, a historian of imperial Russia could, for example, better understand many of the, the complexities and potential pitfalls of trying to reintroduce into Russia with its deeply specific and usually authoritarian political traditions, Western perceptions or Western values of liberalism and even democracy. I think it was also the case simply that it, it was beyond the imagination in the most literal meaning of the word for Sovietologists to imagine that their subject might disappear into the archive Apart from anything else, that would be a dramatic loss of status to them. They would be demoted to be mere historians. And as for the international relations people, bipolarity in world affairs was simply the law of gravity. They simply could not perceive that any other system of international relations would happen. Uh, so I think we historians had a little bit to offer. The schema I came up with in order to try and understand what was going on was roughly this. I put the contemporary events within an idea of modern Russian history based on three cycles of modernization, each of them set up, set off, run by the state from above, each of them designed to ensure that Russia was a competitive, modern, great power. The first of those cycles I called catching up with Louis XIV, which was a damn stupid thing to call it, really. What I meant was Russia's emergence in the 17th, then above all with Peter the Great in the 18th century, as a European great power. The creation of the Russian fiscal military European state and its integration into the traditions and the, the realities of Eurasian empire. That, it seemed to me, was the probably greatest driving force of Tsarist policy. It succeeded. Russia became a, and then to some extent after 1815, the great continental European military state. 1812 to 14, the defeat of Napoleon, the entry of the Russian army into Paris was its moment of greatest glory. And in the reign of Nicholas I, 1825 to 1855, every time they got depressed, they had another big parade uh, about entering Paris, and they awarded each other medals, and everybody was happy. <laughs> the problem was, of course, that at precisely that moment, the basic foundations of power, elements of power in the world were changing. This is fundamentally to do with the Industrial Revolution. And lo and behold, whereas everybody fights the Napoleonic Wars with pre-industrial technology, by the time you get to the Crimean War in the mid-19th century, the other side, the British and the French, are fighting and moving 
and communicating with modern or semi-modern industrial technology, steamships, railways, telegraphs. Alexander II learns most quickly of events in the Crimea via Paris and the telegraph. So this becomes the beginning of the second great phase of modernization, the second great cycle, which I called being a great power in the era of the Industrial Revolution. And that begins with Alexander II's great reforms in the 1850s and 60s and ends really in the 1960s and 70s. And just as 1812-14 to 14 is the great symbol of triumph for Tsarist Russia in the first circle, the entry into Berlin, the victory in the Second World War, is the same for the Soviet Union. And just like Nicholas II and his oldie cronies, so Brezhnev and his cronies do exactly the same in the 70s. You know, uh, every time they get depressed, they have another parade and award themselves some more medals for winning the Second World War. And again, as this is going on, a new world is emerging. Uh, The world of the microchip and the computer, the world in which also capitalism is regaining its self-confidence under Reagan and Thatcher. The Chinese are taking on bits of capitalism. The Japanese are making it their own as well. And it is pretty obvious to the rulers of the Soviet Union, the more intelligent of them anyway, uh, that unless they go in for major changes... Uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, if you want to call it that, is not going to be a great power, not going to be the kind of country of which its elites can be proud uh, for very much longer. And if you had this kind of schema, uh, obviously enough, the parallels you were going to make between the present era, Gorbachev, and the past were going to be with Alexander II. This is modernization from above, liberal modernization. Fired... Uh, by the context in both cases. Alexander launching his reforms in the era of high Victorian liberalism, Gladstone and co. Gorbachev doing the same in the era of Reagan and Thatcher. Liberal liberal capitalist self-confidence, part two. And once you were making those connections and parallels, much of the logic, but also many of the dangers of what Gorbachev was up to, become pretty clear. you know, if you look at one of his key policies, sometimes called glasness, actually the term taken straight from Alexander II's era. I mean, in a sense, what this means is loosening up, appealing to westernizing liberal elements in Russian public opinion, sometimes in Russian state institutions, even if mostly think tanks, in order to undermine the intellectual case for conservatism, in order to help drive forward reforms which are bound to be unpopular with many vested interests. And, you know, when you saw the parallels with Alexander II, you could see what Gorbachev was up to But you could very easily see the dangers. You know, within six years of the demise of Nicholas I's very conservative regime, six, seven years, uh, you have a small but nevertheless very important sector of Russian public opinion calling for the overthrow not just of the monarchy but of private property and marriage. You know, things can go very quickly in Russia when you take the brakes off. And it was likely they would go more quickly in the 1980s than in the 1860s, partly because the Soviet regime did have an enormous number of skeletons only very recently buried. And then there was Zakonus legality, the idea that in order to actually unleash the economic initiative, 
of the population, but also in general, to create the kind of environment in which Russia, the Soviet Union, could modernize, you needed some kind of guarantee of legality. Uh, and there again, this is a very old Tsarist story, as the, the Tsarist police state with its traditions fights the increasing attempts to in, in, introduce a legal order into imperial Russia. But again, it was pretty obvious that things were going to be even harder for Gorbachev than they had been for Alexander. After all, if you did seriously take Soviet law, you had a number of problems, not least that it actually said republics had the right to secede. And then you had the nationalities problem. How many years was it after Alexander came to the throne? Seven, really, six or seven. Seven. Uh, that you had a full-scale Polish revolution which it took hundreds of thousands of Russian troops to crush. It was very obvious that if you were serious about liberalization, let alone democratization, in Gorbachev's Russia, you were going to destabilize the situation in Eastern Europe and in many of the republics of the Soviet Union. Again, things were bound to be worse this time than they had been for Alexander. Uh, you were trying to sit on the whole of Eastern Europe, and you were also dealing with an area both within the Soviet Union and outside in Eastern Europe in which there was a far wider spread of literacy. Democratic principles were much more generally accepted. They dominated in the world to an extent they certainly didn't in the 1860s, not to that extent anyway. I have to say that during those years, I watched with increasing astonishment as the Soviet leadership seemed unaware of the full dangers of what they were doing. It was almost uncanny. Uh, if squeaky little Levin in London could see that things were going to come to bits unless they were careful, you would have thought that the Soviet regime, with its endless intelligence agencies, and it's often by no means stupid leaders, would have got there before me. But they didn't, and I think one reason they didn't, not probably the main one, but one, and this, of course, sounds a very snooty thing coming from a sort of, you know, depressed representative of a former Russian ruling elite, but they had forgotten their history. In 1917, they cut themselves off from the past. They could not realistically uh, analyse what had happened to late imperial Russia and make the comparisons. Uh, because the Soviet regime had, by definition, by rooting itself in this conception of a completely new era, uh, made such comparisons very difficult, even conceptually, even if they'd been taught about the history in that way. Well, in the West, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a source of euphoria. This was almost a kind of magical fairy story. The great enemy of the Cold War collapsed overnight, accepted that Western ideology had been right all the time, and actually disappeared into the history books with barely a shot fired in its defense. If you'd said that in 1985, even on my by no means pro-Soviet, uh, you know, Thatcher committee, uh, you would have been thought of as distinctly, as you might say, original. Uh, <laughs> but it was not a fairy story for the Russians. Uh, tried to explain in the 1990s to British audiences just what a possible equivalent to Russia's experience between 1880, 1885 and 19, well, 2000 might have looked like in British terms. I think you would have had to imagine the collapse of the British Empire in the 1930s almost overnight at a time when most British people took it, A, for granted, and B, as basically a friendly and benevolent institution. 
you would have had to accepted the, the secession of Scotland and Wales, Ukraine and Belarus. But worse, whatever else the English think about Scotland, they certainly don't think that English statehood and English religion began in Edinburgh. Russian statehood and Russian religion did begin in what we now call Ukraine. You would have had to imagine the collapse of the constitutional monarchy and of the parliamentary system, which is essentially the collapse of the Communist Party and of the Soviet state. And along with that of a moral order, a set of values which you might dislike, but certainly were to some extent existing, suddenly moving into this extraordinary new world of bandit capitalism. You would have had to exp uh, experience also a depression worse than the 1930s. Pile all that on top of each other, and even the rather phlegmatic English people of the 1930s might have got a bit excited. It is not at all surprising, in other words, that what we have had is a strong nationalist backlash in Russia. I remember actually talking to Douglas Hurd, having lunch with him back in '90. And to do him justice, he was one of the relatively rare contemporary Western leaders and statesmen to whom you could talk about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or indeed history in general, without him looking at you as if you were asking how much it all cost, or, you know, <laughs> etc. Um, and we talked about Ukraine and what the impact on European security might be from Ukraine becoming independent with Crimea, and we had a conversation in which we agreed that if uh, an independent Ukraine within those borders ever attempted to make even political, let, ex let alone existential choices between East and West, it would probably disintegrate. So there were voices there that did understand, and Thatcher herself was good at understanding a brief and willing to listen to people who did not share her ideological commitments but they did distinguish themselves in some ways very sharply from a lot of the subsequent leadership, uh, which, by which I don't just mean British, which is, has been ignorant of history and entirely incapable of understanding what is going on in Russia within a broader context. Have I got, how many more? Have I got two or three more minutes? Yeah. Um, how, how many minutes? Five? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I think what I will sort of try and wrap it up with then is to say, look, that is how I tried to understand contemporary events within the broader sphere of Russian history then. Um, what would I do now in similar circumstances? And I suppose the, the real key here is that my schema was based on, the, on a perception of Western hegemony European then Western, whatever that means, uh, and Russia catching up with the West. Well, we appear to be in a world in which Western hegemony is draining away with every week. Uh, and in particular, Anglo-American leadership, or even, if you like, semi-hegemony within that Western camp, which was really established in the Seven Years' War, when the British, not the French, showed they were going to run America and India, consolidated by the Industrial Revolution, and which defended itself in one war after another against attempts to actually challenge that basically Anglophone leadership dominance, if you want, in the world. The, two, the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, the two world wars, the Cold, wars, Cold War can all, in a sense, be seen as attempts to overthrow that hegemony which failed at vast cost. 
If indeed it is true now that we are living in the last years of that hegemony, then we are certainly going to be living in exciting times and we should expect a great deal of conflict, possibly fundamentally catastrophic conflict. I live half my life in East Asia. I reckon there is a good 30% chance of nuclear war in East Asia in my children's lifetime. Uh, And at that point, of course, you come back to the subject of my last book, which was the origins of the First World War, and see all the potentially ghastly parallels between pre-1914 and now, even in Europe, but above all out in East Asia and Asia as a whole, where the conflicts really are likely to matter. And I think that is the cheerful point on which I would end. Um, So perhaps it's a very good thing that I'm not a member of any um, Prime Minister's Foreign Policy Advisory Council any longer. Anyway, it's good to be back, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Well, I think I've got 15 minutes as a, an early modernist to explain why, in my view, 18th century Russia governs the perceptions of, of Russia today. Um, put very simply, and this is the period where Russia becomes part of the modern European world, it does so in two ways. It does so by becoming part of the European state system, as Chai said. It also does so by sharing, at least to an extent, Uh, European political, ideological and cultural uh, developments. And in in my view, those are the origins of many perceptions today, both in in Russia about the rest of the world and in the rest of the world about Russia. That Russia became part of the European state's system, I think, in many ways is self-evident. It's difficult to pinpoint the moment when Russia became a great power, and there were many possible moments in the 18th and early 19th century, One of them is Battle of Poltava in 1709, when the Russians beat the Swedes, which sent shockwaves around Europe. Another one, I think, was 1721, when Peter had the impertinence to style himself an emperor. Uh, Tsar is itself an, an imperial title. It's a corruption of Caesar. But that didn't matter. But it did matter when Peter the Great demanded that he should be referred to as Emperor, Imperator, because it was putting himself on the same level as the Holy Roman Emperor in in, in Europe. And maybe even more important was the point where other countries agreed to do it. It took several decades, uh, Britain and Poland being the last ones to accept it. I suppose that won't surprise you. It could have been in in the Seven Years' War, when Russian troops occupied Berlin, uh, that they'd moved so far away from their their frontiers, because it was a shock to Europe. Or it could be in Catherine the Great's reign, when Russia then borders directly Austria and Prussia after the partitions of Poland, or indeed it could be Alexander I marching down the Champs-Élysées on a white horse in 1814 leading his troops. But irrespective of the point at which it became a great power, it's very clear that Russia is part of the European state system. Just to give an example from my my own research about how attitudes changed, uh, one of the books I have written is a biography of Charles Whitworth, who was the first British ambassador in Russia. He wasn't the first envoy, but he was the first formal ambassador, and he was there during the reign of Peter the Great, and he witnessed uh, the, the, the Great Northern War, and you know, personally had to deal with, with Peter, which was no joke for him, because he didn't drink, so he was at a disadvantage there. <laughs> in any event, Peter arrived in Russia in 1705. This was a lousy posting. 
He only got it because he lacked the contacts and the experience uh, to have got a posting somewhere more prestigious, uh, either in uh, Vienna or at The Hague, where all the secrets were passed, or in Spain or in the Italian peninsula. Uh, when he arrived, the Great Northern War had already started. Peter had lost one battle against the Swedes. He was desperate for the British to cooperate with him in a diplomatic alliance against Sweden. Whitworth had got no diplomatic instructions whatsoever. He was sent to Russia in order to establish a deal for selling colonial tobacco to the Russians. There was a good reason for doing it. The Russian ships went to Russia full of ballast and they came back full of naval stores. There was nothing that uh, England at the time than Britain exported to, to, to Russia. So the idea of dumping colonial tobacco on Russia was a good idea and Peter, who smoked, uh, had allowed tobacco suddenly to be imported into Russia. It had been forbidden beforehand. So Whitworth's first job was not to discuss uh, diplomatic relations with Peter. His first job was to smash up a rival Dutch tobacco uh, factory in Moscow in an act of a fairly outrageous and brutal industrial sabotage. <laughs> and as he said himself, he said about the Russian ministers, he said, you know, I have nothing but export and importation in my mouth and they are apt to mistake me for a tobacco agent. <laughs> he had no diplomatic instructions. By the time Whitworth left Russia in 1710, the world had already changed. Uh, Russia had beaten the Swedes at the Battle of Poltava. Whitworth himself wrote a very serious account that was later published about the potential of Russia, not the actual, but the potential of Russia, uh, to challenge Central and, and West European powers on economic grounds uh, and on its uh, military spending and on, on, on the Navy. And he was made ambassador in order to actually present an apology uh, to Russia from Queen Anne because of the way that uh, the Russian ambassador had been treated in, in London. I will come back to that, but the, the thing had changed. Uh, by the end of, of uh, Peter's reign, uh, Whitworth is then uh, reporting, he's then in Berlin at this time in 1721, when the Great Northern War ends about uh, the dangers that Russia now poses because she now controls the, the Baltic and she controls the naval stores. Put this in context, I mean, Britain has a wooden fleet, but it needs uh, those main masts need to come from uh, colder climates, they need to come from Scandinavia or from Russia. Russia had every means to build a wooden fleet, uh, and Britain hadn't. And, and that, that fear of, of Russia, uh, military force and potential naval force, goes right through, certainly to the end of the 18th century, uh, when Pitt becomes very worried that Russia can actually expand in the Mediterranean uh, and, and move out towards the, the, the Middle East. So that great power status, I think, becomes a, a clear uh, case. Part of the European political cultural scene, well, it starts at the top, of course. It starts with, with the Tsars. I'm not going to talk about uh, shaving off beards, but the Tsars simply did believe, all of them, I think, right through to the, the 19th century, they could take what they wanted. Not everything, of course, but what they selected to take from the West, uh, whether it was clothing, whether it's, it was uh, fashion, whether it was institutions, whether it was concepts of law, whether it was urban institutions, whether it was craft guilds, uh, central institutions, they could be taken uh, as far as they selected it. And of course, by the end of the 18th century, it's not just the Tsars, but by that time you've, uh, there is an intellectual elite in Russia which also felt the same, which read the same books in the same language, which spoke new French, uh, and, and quite often German as well, could therefore absorb ideas, current ideological ideas, cultural ideas of the Enlightenment, and felt that they should share uh, within it. At the same time, 
the West learnt about Russia. I'm conscious in the 18th century that I use the term the West because I think it was the West rather than the world, and that is in itself problematic. But the West learnt about Russia. It wasn't that they didn't know Russia existed before the 18th century, but it's almost as if getting to know Russia was a business in, in the 18th century. There were so many travel accounts of Russia, particularly in the second half of the 18th century. Many of these travel accounts, of course, concentrate on the exotic, in particular the gruesome corporal punishments that were inflicted in Russia, and the titivating idea that in the bathhouse the sexes might actually mingle. But even when you got beyond the bathhouse and the knout, uh, there was a, a, an understanding of what rule was, who the chief ministers were, how the political systems worked, what serfdom was, what the agricultural system was, and again, what the potential was in terms of the economy and in terms of, of the military uh, of, of Russia in, in the European system. So, really, by uh, end of the 18th century, that's known. They know each other. I think, you know, as an 18th century, I mean, one of the features of, of Russian uh, of historiography of Russia is that it's always sort of reflected that. It's always been interdisciplinary. There's always been a sense in the 18th century that you can't understand the history without understanding the literature. You can't understand the culture without understanding the politics. And I think it's always also been very much Russia uh, within this more global context. In the context of the West, I have to say, rather than the world. From the West, I'd include USA as well as Central uh, and Western Europe. So those, those features, I think, of, uh, of Russian studies in the UK, in the West, but also in Russia, are something that very much reflect that sort of 18th century background. Finally, uh, from this, you know, what can we learn today of present sort of perceptions? How much are they rooted in the 18th century? And I'd say that they are in, in three uh, key ways. The first way is the fear of Russia, which started in the early 18th century. Uh, the fear of Russian uh, military prowess when you start to get sort of Russian troops under Peter going across northern Germany, uh, and, and then uh, troops in Berlin, <coughs> troops going across the, the, the Balkans, outside their own borders. Uh, before the 18th century, there was a consciousness of Russian military prowess, but it was always felt it was within their, their borders. There's the potential fear, a very strong potential fear in the 18th century of the Russian Navy. I don't think we share that today, because we don't have a navy to be fearful about, <laughs> but it certainly was feared in the 18th century. Uh, and in Peter's reign, uh, anyone, any English, British, usually Scottish actually, in, in employment in Russia, in, in dockyards, in canal building, or in the Navy were recalled uh, because of the fear uh, that they would pass on secrets. It didn't matter earlier on, they could go, but then they were suddenly uh, recalled. Uh, part of that was because Peter's fleet in the Baltic, which is mostly a galley fleet, gave the British Navy a complete runaround. Uh, but it, it, that fear was there, and I don't think that fear has ever uh, really gone. Secondly, I think a second feature, which features very uh, strongly uh, today uh, in, in Russia, is this idea of demanding respect. Uh, that Russia demands respect uh, from the West and always striving to get that uh, respect in, in foreign relations. When I, I mentioned Charles Whitworth, who was sent off to uh, bash up this tobacco factory, but the reason he became ambassador uh, rather than envoy was because the Russian ambassador in, in London uh, was, was treated uh, disrespectfully. Essentially, some bailiffs pounced on him, <laughs> pulled him from his carriage and dumped him into a debtor's prison. 
Now, you shouldn't do this even in the early 18th century. There was some concept of diplomatic immunity, uh, but it was the way that the Russian ambassador uh, was treated. And the British thought they could get away with it. They thought that a few kind words, uh, soothing words, and it would all go away. And Peter was absolutely determined that they would not get away with it. Uh, the British hesitated, they sent messages back and forth, but after the Battle of Poltava, uh, they had to uh, react, uh, and they had to then send a very formal apology, which Whitworth presented and had to present as, as ambassador from Queen Anne, and then they also uh, developed their, more, more finally, their, their, their diplomatic immunity laws. But that was just sort of one snapshot in a way of showing how suddenly you had to respect uh, the Tsar, even though they, they hadn't wanted to. And I think that that's a feature that continues throughout the 18th century, uh, that you have to be at the conferences, that Catherine had to participate, had to have a view on armed neutrality during the American War of Independence, had to be part and parcel, and then it reaches its apogee with Alexander I and the Congresses, uh, 1815 and after. So the demand for respect is there. Is there a sense of victimhood? I think there is a sense of victimhood to today, certainly in Russia, of being invaded, put down, misunderstood. I think that, that's less evident in, in the 18th century, but it, it's certainly there. Uh, certainly the, sort of the, the crueler cartoons that come out of, of Russia, uh, of Russia in the late 18th century, and I think Catherine in particular depict that. We were supposed to have an art historian with us. We haven't got one, so I will give an example of art history that just shades over into the early 19th century. And that's the, the statue of Minin and Pajarsky, which, as you probably know, now stands in front of uh, St. Basil's on Red Square, used to stand in the centre of Red Square until it was removed so the parades could go past. Minin and Pajarsky. Minin was a merchant, and Pajarsky was a prince uh, who were uh, said to have uh, repelled the Poles when they invaded Russia in the early uh, uh, 17th century. But the statue wasn't built, of course, in the early 17th century. The statue was designed in 1804, at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, but before the 1812 invasion, it was put in place in 1818 as a very strong message, you know, don't try this again. <laughs> this is what happens when somebody in invades. So it's put there in 1818, and just to bring it up to date, I mean, the day that's now commemorated in Russia is the day of Russian national unity. It's the 4th of November, and it commemorates Minin and Pajarsky. And, of course, it's very conveniently close to uh, the date that would have commemorated the revolution. So the roots of that run, run deep, and, and I think the, the thinking behind it runs back to the 18th century. And the third and, and final uh, way in which the 18th century is important, I think, is this ambivalence on both sides about each other. It's more pronounced, I think, in the 19th century in Russia, but even in the 18th century, from the Russian perspective, there's already a reaction by the late 18th century against slavish copying of the West, against the humiliation of always having to get it second-hand, copy, catch up, uh, and a feeling that things which are truly uh, Russian uh, and, and more uh, powerful are being uh, neglected. And at the same time, a, a sense among some of the intellectual elite that, of course, this westernising isn't going far enough and the Tsar should do more, in particular in relation to serfdom. So that debate, which is more acute in the 19th century, has its root in the 18th century. And I think the ambivalence from the West, too, has its root in the 18th century. Russia may be a great power, she may be at the conferences, but I think there's still a very strong sense in the 18th century that she's not quite one of us. She's still on the edge, there's still an Eastern element there. She's not quite an equal. 
So I think I would conclude by saying that those key features of the 18th century uh, were features that were formed in the 18th century, uh, and they're features that have never actually gone away uh, and are still quite dominant in the contemporary world. And now Alexander. Um, thank you very much, and um, I'm very glad to be at the London School of Economics. Uh, very, uh, very happy about uh, the project that uh, um, the Paulson, Frederick Paulson project that centers on bringing in research on the history of Russia before 1917 or Imperial Russia. Uh, and uh, I'm particularly happy to be at the London School of Economics because London School of Economics is a long-standing partnership of my university and uh, the full name of my university is the National Research University Higher School of Economics. So whenever they ask me back there in Russia, what historians are doing in a high school of economics. I'm happily pointing towards London, saying that one of the best history departments in the world is there, and historians don't seem to be terribly misplaced at that university. That's the case. Um, so I was asked to, to comment on the relevance and the importance uh, of this project, and uh, I do think um, that it's not only relevant, but also very timely, and I have three and a half comments uh, to make, and I'll start really with a half uh, um, uh, because it's a very small one. And we need extra funding to do history. I just visited um, the British uh, Museum, uh, and there is a very fine exhibition in the British Museum on the history of money. And there is a coin, one ruble, there in the exhibition. And the caption reads um, that the Soviet Union was driven by ideology, they wanted to extinguish market economy. Uh, and so the ideology showed on the iconography on money and coins, and here you have two workers marching to the bright future represented on a coin of one ruble. You look closer, and uh, you see that one male figure is patronizing the other male figure. You look even more closer, and of course you realize that this is a worker and a peasant, not two workers. And if you know anything about second world, be it uh, of Mao Zedong's coinage or Professor Levin's, in fact, coinage as a concept, then of course you would immediately realize how important it is to have a peasant and a worker and all the conflicts of social and economic uh, nature arising from uneven development in the 19th century to be present on this coin. So we need extra funding and, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> very fine, very fine, but, but such mistakes uh, shouldn't really happen. Now let me let me move to the to the first full uh, full uh, reason, and I, I do want to stress that the project is very is very timely because it can take stock and capitalize on uh, a tectonic shift in history writing that happened in the past two decades, and some of the movers and actors of this tectonic shift are present uh, uh, on this panel. Uh, and what happened is that uh, the category of empire edged, if not um, uh, displaced. Uh, the category of nation uh, and nation-bound narratives from our writing uh, of history. And um, uh, I would like to cite uh, as an example of that to illustrate the point of this tectonic shift, none other than Benedict Anderson, the author of The Imagined Communities. And the citation comes from the interview he gave to the international journal Ab Imperial Studies of New Imperial History and Nationalism in the Post-Soviet uh, Space. Thank you, Matthew, for introducing that. I just wanted to stress that this is not ad imperium, this is ab imperium. Uh, <laughs> I, think it's a, I, I think I want to be on record, particularly uh, 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 within this panel. So here comes the quote from the interview that was taken back in 2003. 
I do think that there is a lot of important historical cultural research needed and the breakup of the old empires, not yet finished, and the transition to the national states, perhaps especially for the cases of Russia and China. It is also true that the history of nationalism is short one, by comparison with that of the old empires. But this simply means, as we all know, that history is speeding up all the time. The history of automobile and steamship is also short compared to that of the horse cart and sailing vessel. This does not mean that the horse cart and sailing vessel have a bright future before that. And the culmination of the interview, uh, uh, Anderson says, furthermore, we study empires as we do dinosaurs, as things of the past, irretrievable, except in the laboratory. Nations are still roaming the steps and the prayers. Back in 2003, what a year, uh, if you can think about um, the coming um, disorder in, in, in the global affairs. So I hope you recognize a tectonic shift um, that happened in historiography and in comparative studies of the empire. I mean, for, uh, for one, I, I don't see people really citing empires as dinosaurs. I don't think that we have an idea that empires are things of the archaic bygone past and they have no uh, role and no influence uh, in modern history and, and, and in, in contemporary uh, asymmetries of power in, in the world. Of course, there is a debate on, on whether we can um, uh, take the model of empire and look at the contemporary relations, but uh, it's out of question that uh, the modern history, uh, 19th and 20th century, is dominated and populated by empires, and if you are not centering on them, you are just misreading uh, the, process, uh, uh, the processes in this uh, period. Uh, we also approach the history of empires uh, without the presumption that the talus of this history uh, is to move towards the collapse and dissolution. And, and remember, in Anderson, the most important element in the, in the history of empires that remains to be studied is the dissolution, the collapse, the end of the empire. Um, we, thanks to many historians, uh, we've looked uh, with the new lens, uh, at the new angle, on, on the longevity of the empires, on, on their persistence. Um, and we no longer believe that the story of the decline and fall uh, is the one to tell. Uh, particularly if, if you look at the history of Russia, uh, it's obvious that the rediscovery of the imperial dimension in Russian history uh, benefited enormously the historical understanding of the uh, historical development of, of, of Russia. Uh, and, and the question about longevity and the question about the persistence of uh, uh, imperial structures or such an imperial formation uh, is the one um, that is uh, at the center uh, of, uh, of thinking. But also I would like um, uh, to highlight that we witnessed the emergence of a new uh, interesting subject, imperial sovereignty, how it's structured uh, in a polity that we call an empire, imperial universalism. Uh, as concerns ideology and vision, a very neglected category of subjecthood uh, and citizenship. Um, we take uh, now these topics. I have to say that it's no longer about uh, political history of foreign policy. We take it to understanding social and cultural experiences uh, in a very diverse um, realm. And what happens now, I think, since we've established the longevity of the imperial structures, I think we come to a very interesting moment of uh, thinking about the dialectics of rupture and continuity. 
Um, I would argue that the rediscovery of empire, particularly with respect to so-called continental empires, has created the long-termism or empire realism, where immediately you start studying uh, the Habsburg Empire, the Russian Empire, immediately you see the empire everywhere. And I think we need more comparative research uh, particularly I th uh, because we overlooked the many transformations. So many of them were cited by the previous speakers, but you take uh, the 17th century uh, schism that created problems with uh, unambiguously identifying the boundaries of the Russian national, communi uh, national community. Um, you take the 18th century, and, and you take this interesting dynamics in the 18th century. You have an infant on the throne, and, and at some point you have a German princess uh, that uh, have as many rights to the throne as we would have. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 yet, and yet we overlook these important, uh, this important transformations, not to mention the 19th century uh, and early um, uh, 20th century. So I think uh, we, we have a way, interestingly, to compare these processes in the Russian Empire, understanding not only the long durée, the persistence of the imperial formations, but also the many transformations that accompanied its history. And what is interesting is that every time a change was on the table, it was not about completely elimin eliminating the diversity, but rather reframing it, redefining it, but the problem and the challenge of diversity was present. So the second element of this tectonic shift is that um, uh, we, we, we shift our attention uh, to the many cultural, uh, religious uh, uh, traditions, social statuses, but also uh, localities that define the identities of the population and that were construed in the history uh, of the Russian Empire. And I have to say that we usually say multi-ethnic or multinational empire, but uh, you know, thinking about um, uh, even the 19th century, we realized that religion and nationality is not the same thing. And that might come back to us uh, when we're thinking about diversity, uh, when um, the languages we sort of uh, can master, but there, there's a certain religious divine uh, that uh, then is discussed with regard to problems of uh, immigration, uh, for instance. Well, let, let me give you an example of, of how the problem of diversity is part of rethinking um, uh, the history of the Russian Empire. I was invited to Yakutsk, very far away, uh, Eastern Siberia, six hours from Moscow. Um, when I arrived, it was minus 37 centigrade, and they said the winter is just starting. <laughs> uh, and they had a project on, on um, rewriting the history of the Yakutia or the Yakut people. They were ambivalent about that. And the very first point uh, of their discussion is that they say, we are the northernmost Turkic uh, people uh, living on Earth. Uh, and uh, we have a national republic, that national republic in existence now in the Russian Federation. It's known for the mineral resources and also for talented people. Uh, and they say, we need to write the history within the national republic, but the history of the Yakut people is really of merchants and, and intermediaries. They traveled all the way to the Ahotsk Sea, and uh, Yakut was a lingua franca of, of, of the region. So the people's history that we immediately associate with indigeneity, with indigenous population, happens to be also transnational, happens to be very mobile, and happens to be cosmopolitan or universalist in one way. So what I'm saying is that when we are rewriting the history of diversity, it's not only because we think that uh, a Russian nation doesn't have a clear definition and therefore it doesn't fit a national history canon or a national history fray, it also doesn't work with the uh, non-imperial or anti-imperial people when we look 
um, uh, when we look to the past. And uh, of course, questions of hybridity, mixing, crossing, uh, uh, multi-layered identities, they're all in, in research now with respect to the Russian Empire. And I think, again, uh, uh, together with the uh, uh, subject of uh, universalism, they, they, can some, they can have some relevance uh, to our uh, debate. And, and the second reason, uh, very quickly, uh, it seems like no history department can survive without having a global history program on board. Um, that seems to be the move, and, and there are many critics of global history as an enterprise. But what, I'm, what I would like to cite and, and make a connection is that uh, uh, there is an interesting trend, self-critical trend within the global history when it uh, juxtaposes the enterprise of global history to big and deep history, the one that is omnipresent and the one that is planetary in scope. Instead, the authors of this global history say that the world and the globe is imagined, that it depends on cultural perspectives of those people who think about transcending the boundaries and think about the world. And in, 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 in a way, it's a constructive way of thinking about the global, global history and not equating the, the global history with the history of globalization. Uh, and of course, history of imperial universalism, not always peaceful. Uh, and, and global history in this constructivist key uh, can, uh, can be really uh, compatible. And I think uh, this is, again, where we would need to sort of uh, reinsert the Russian historical experience uh, into, uh, into the picture. And the fourth reason, uh, um, uh, the, the, the third full reason uh, uh, that I'm giving uh, uh, is that uh, we need this project because history does not seem. And let me quote from um, um, Professor Levin, 2005, Elikidur Memorial Lecture. <laughs> <laughs> the European Union is much less of an empire, though one might perhaps see it as a modernized version of the very untypical imperial tradition embodied by the uh, uh, Holy Roman Empire. But some of the EU goals and challenges are distinctly imperial. The Union exists to mobilize and unite the resources of a continent, not just to enjoy the wealth sustained by a large market, but also for typically imperial aims of power and security. The only sphere of power in which the USA is truly balanced at present is commerce, thanks to the EU. The emergence of Europe may in time challenge the dollar's financial dominion too. Currently, however, the EU greatest geopolitical challenge lies to the East. In 1900, there existed a core First World Europe and Second World Europe, which included the continents Western, Ireland, Portugal, Southern, Spain, Italy, and Eastern, the Habsburg and Russian Empire's periphery. Partly thanks to the EU, the Southern and Western periphery since 1945 has become part of the European core. The big issue now is whether this success can be repeated in the Eastern periphery of Europe. Not saying, not saying that there is no challenge, and, and I would very much uh, welcome the historical and political science analysis on um, the eastern borders of the empire, but history does not change and it's full of paradoxes. So one challenge that Professor Levin did not mention is the one that's coming from the opposite of east uh, direction. That's coming from... <laughs> <laughs> this lot. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I do believe also that when we get to studies of empire, Russian empire in particular, it's not that we're seeking practical lessons. You know, uh, how do we sort of advise the government and how do we suggest what do we do in this situation? But, uh, you know, history in that case works rather as a mirror of social and political imagination. We look to it 
not because we want to repeat it, but, but because it has a powerful instrument to estrange and criticize the hegemonic versions of telling the story about the past uh, and the future. And if the nation state uh, all of a sudden is not fitting uh, and adequately responding to the challenges uh, that we have at the moment, then we might think about historical alternatives, not necessarily implementing them uh, at present. And with this, I would like to close. Thank you. some time for questions and comments from the audience. I think we have some mics as well which can go around. If people will put their hands up and then the microphones can be distributed. Um, I think we have um, a woman here on the front row who's raising a hand. There's the one. Thank you to all the panelists. Um, I've studied Russia a little bit throughout undergrad. I'm a master's student here and I focus on this a little bit with my dissertation. I thought it was very interesting everything you guys mentioned. And I just have a quick question about more of the modern history. It was mentioned very briefly, mostly Gorbachev and a little bit beyond. But someone mentioned that it was kind of like a fairy tale, unfathomable what happened when the Soviet Union fell apart. And the question I have is, there is some history written about how it was partially the West's influence with their economists, with the Clinton administration, and with the things that were done in Russia in the 90s that led to what happened after Gorbachev had already left. Would you say that that was unfathomable even afterwards, after you saw that it was the West there, the West influencing it? Or would you say that, could that be a fairy tale, or was it kind of a thought-out process, in a way? Thank you. I may not have completely understood what you were saying, um, but I think one should ex not exaggerate the extent to which the West can control or could control events across the world, and particularly in as large and as proud a country as Russia. Um, I think Western policy had some very serious errors to it. I actually spent 1992 to four in Japan, and actually I think that the Japanese Ministry of Finance intelligent people had a better understanding of what needed to be done than most of the professors at Harvard and LSE. That was partly because they had had to go through a not dissimilar process in 19... 45 to 51, uh, they had, I think, a much more justified uh, skepticism about the wondrous you know, consequences of just letting liberal free economy rip. Um, on the other hand, of course, Japan, after 1945, had a state. Uh, it's arguable that it took some time for a Russian state to re-emerge out of the debris of communism. Um, I think, tragically, the, the collapse of a polity like the Soviet Union is likely to have very serious consequences, particularly if it disintegrates overnight. Uh, I think the miracle, the fairy story, was that given the scale and the complexity and the often quite cruel political history and traditions of this policy, it collapsed without world war and without civil war. Uh, but it sometimes takes a generation for the consequences of empire to go, come home to roost. We are still living with the consequences in the Middle East of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and to sort of pick up on what, sorry, what Sasha was saying, which is actually sort of tangentially relevant to your question, uh, one problem about the European model of the nation state 
um, is that it's taken two world wars, genocide and ethnic cleansing, to establish that as the dominant model even in Central and Eastern Europe. And we may be going backwards. Uh, that model does not fit most of the former Ottoman Empire, and it does not fit most of Asia. Most of the great states of Asia look more like empires than they do European ethno-national states. If they get European nationalist disease, which identity politics might well you know, encourage, uh, then you know, the risk to the survival of the planet is going to be enormous. You're talking about India, Indonesia, Iran, China. One reason why the Japanese made the most success of European-style modernization is that they're more European than the Europeans themselves in terms of ethno-national, ethno-linguistic solidarity. Um, so, I mean, part of the reason for looking back is to understand just how much our categories are Western-dominated and just what dangers those categories present, uh, you know, for most of mankind. Um. Okay, let's take two together. There's a gentleman there with a the beard, just second in, and then behind him, there's a woman with a hand, uh, a light top on as well. Thank we'll take you very two. much. One of the brilliant talks. Um, I, one question I would ask, um, uh, roughly the relationship with the Muslim world, uh, um, um, during the imperial, um, Russia annexed several uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, and um, then it was incorporated within the Soviet Union. They stayed within the Soviet Union, but now they've been given independence. I'd be very interested to say if perhaps the Russian professor anywhere else what that relationship will mean for Russia's relationship with the uh, Muslim-dominated states who are part of the Soviet Union in the future. Okay, and the second one as well. Hi. Um, I'm currently writing my thesis on Russian national identity. Um, and I was wondering what the panel's views were on Nicholas I's legacy and the rise of intellectual conservatism in Russia. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> yes. You, you, no, no, you go first. <laughs> particularly on the first question. Yes, you have the first yeah. 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 Well, um, why don't you have the first one? This, second is, question? this is exactly why we should be very careful with the idea of a multi-ethnic empire. Um, because uh, for many people, in, for a long time, uh, a religious identification uh, was much more important than an ethnic or a national uh, identification, and, and you can make an argument that um, that um, sort of logic had a persistence um, um, through history. But th at the same time, you want to be very careful without assuming that all Muslims are alike. Uh, because, of course, if you go contextual in terms of region and in terms of um, um, different um, um, denominations, you would find that um, um, you know the, the, the kind of the singular collective Muslim uh, identification is 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 very wrong. Um, there, there is an interesting research uh, going on exactly uh, unpacking the formation of the Muslim identities um, within the space, the universalism uh, of the empire. The problem with that is that the Muslim had their own. Um, universalism. So that we're really thinking and talking about competing universalisms shaping uh, the globe, um, um, you know, in different directions. Not arriving at the fully uniform world um, that some people uh, would like to have. Uh, and and in terms of history, uh, I mean, that's the part. I, I, I leave to other experts to comment on the current state of relationship with the Muslim world, but. Uh, um, you know, many people would say that uh, 
um, you know, right now, very interesting things are happening in North Caucasus, and um, the presence of uh, post-war Chechnya with Ramzan Kadyrov uh, within the secular Russian Federation uh, with a constitution and a civil law is quite a challenge because what we are talking about is two different legal systems um, um, that are uh, that are in clash. So there there are problems uh, there are problems down this road, and also these competing universalisms are are, are part uh, are part of the picture. I'll have a first uh, bash at it. I mean, you're talking about Nicholas I and uh, conservative ideology and, and Russian identity. And uh, I said that some of the more sort of acute um, conflicts over whether to take from the West or, or, or sort of from uh, Russian traditions came in the 19th century, which, of course, that they, they did in the 1830s. But I, I think that it's... Uh, and that, that sort of conflict has been there before, though. It's very deeply ingrained. So, I mean, from Peter I's reign, you could say that many of the things that he, he brought in were offensive in, in terms of undermining what had been a, a very traditional cultural and orthodox society. And the same with Catherine as, as well. So I think there's already some sense there of, of, of whether this undermines what should be a Russian identity by simply copying... Uh, very eclectically from, from the West, simply what you want to copy from the West, not the West, lock, stock and barrel. So I think that that's a, a much more general problem that runs through 18th, 19th, 20th century than just Nicholas uh, I and being a more conservative ideology. We're looking at, at a sense of, of Russian identity and what it is to be, to be Russian, then I, I suppose I mean, the simplest way of knowing what you are is what you're not. And, uh, and they, they knew they were not Poles uh, back in the, in the, the, in the early uh, 17th century. Uh, they knew they were not Lutherans. They knew they were not Catholics. Uh, they knew they were not atheists uh, when Napoleon's troops came in with a lot of Polish support. So I, I think that too, a sense of, of identity, can be something that can be posited uh, against the West uh, just as much as, as a more conservative ideology. That partly addresses it, if you want to... Yes, I mean, I would just say that Nicholas I is ambivalent, as Tsarist Russia and indeed educated Russia have been and are ambivalent about where they stand in relationship to what's now called the West. Nicholas is very much the brother-in-law of the King of Prussia. Uh, Nicholas is very much and proudly the heir of Peter. But he is also, and more broadly, his regime of Araf and co., partly are aware of the threat now from the West in ideological terms because we're no longer living in the era when enlightened despotism dominates. Um, and they have perfectly legitimate fears about what excessive liberalism, etc., might do to the Russia of their day and to the re their own regime. And so they, along with deeper currents in Russian society, which are sometimes called Slavophile, do also begin to stress that we are, you know, not just the poor stepson of Europe. We have our own traditions, our own way of doing things, our own values, and that our society can only develop safely with respect to those values, for those values. It doesn't mean we won't borrow, um, but we won't simply be swamped. We will retain a core of our own traditions. And, you know, fundamentally that debate within the Russian intelligentsia and to some extent within you know, the ruling elites has gone on. In the 1980s, it was the pro-Western liberalizing uh, current which took over. 
uh, initially hoping, in a sense, to go back some way towards social democracy, West, well, European, universal social democracy, beyond that then to liberal capitalism and liberal democracy. Uh, conceivably, they could have taken the alternative way out of communism, which would have been Russian nationalism and authoritarianism. That is the way that Milosevic went. It's the way that the Chinese are still going. Uh, and it's the way that, in retrospect, many Russians wish they had gone, because the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s were very traumatic for many of them. Uh, we will see how things develop. But I do come back to something which I, you know, I said in my own little talk. Uh, it does matter enormously what model in the world looks most successful. Uh, and the Western model does not look very successful at the moment. And America is a disastrous uh, you know, model for democracy. Uh, and actually, if I had to choose who was a greater danger to international peace, I, I would certainly put Trump above Xi Jinping. Uh, if only because I think that Xi Jinping knows what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> and also, and this more seriously, that it is very possible that we will, we've been lucky, Trump has not been faced by a major crisis, it is very possible that we will face crises in which just as in 1914 and 39, and inevitably, decisions which will perfectly possibly cost the lives of billions will be made by groups of two, three, four people. At the absolute basic, you want a man at the top or a woman, that matters nothing, uh, who has some sense of responsibility at some level to the community they govern uh, and is not completely a slave to his or her own ego to an extent which will block out any considerations. Um, I do find it actually very frightening that I think we have as the leader of the most powerful country in the world uh, a man who would actually prefer to kill billions of people um, than to, you know, put his own ego at risk. Um, I don't think that is true of Xi Jinping. I think there is a sort of traditional Chinese statist Confucian discipline there. Okay, I think we've got five more minutes, so let's have two more questions. Maybe from the back on the, this hand. So they've got there's a man on the aisle there who's putting his hand up in the light blue shirt. <coughs> And there's a woman at the very far corner there at the end of the row. We have those two. <laughs> and we'll take one more in the middle there. That's yes, there's one more. So, sir, if you could um, so ask what relevance, if any, does the Russian soul concept have in the way Russia conducts its foreign policy? The, 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 can you speak up? The Russian who? The Russian soul. Okay. Dostoevsky. Okay. <laughs> and the... Pass the microphone along to the woman at the end. He must be a German. My question relates to the, uh, to the final stages of the Cold War, uh, and particularly to what extent did Ronald Reagan's SDA policy contribute to the collapse of Soviet Union? Oh. Was its impact really strong? SDI in the end of the Cold SDA War. SDA yeah. policy. And uh, the second question of mine is uh, whether uh, do you professors uh, think it would be possible uh, for um, a notion similar to Gorbachev's democratization uh, happen uh, in the post-Putin uh, Russian reality? Okay. And then 
finally, the, the man in the middle there has his hand up with a... Uh, thank you very much for presenting such interesting points. I have two small questions. First of all, in judging on your common knowledge, where do you think Russia at the moment is heading as a state government economy? And what do you think are the best and most crucial steps that the state, the private sector, and individuals have to undertake now to make Russia a better place? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Two minutes we're going to solve all the problems. Yes, we have two minutes. Yes, Sasha. Do you want to go first, Sasha? I want to pick on, on, the, on, the, on the stages of the Cold War, uh, the final stages of the Cold War, and it happens so that um, I would say um, the climate in the Cold War was rather conservative, were neoliberal, um, and it blocked some of the ideas that might have, might have gone into such a major transformation. I mean, it took Marshall Plan to actually, you know, rework Europe, and, and, and none of it was on the horizon when um, the Soviet Union was going, late Soviet Union was going through, um, through these reforms. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say that, uh, <laughs> you know, conservative attitude towards history is, is very good. Don't interfere too much, let things sort of develop. But at certain moments in history, you do have to have some imagination to do things because otherwise, um, uh, you know, things go um, unpredictable. So that would be my, my point on the, on the final stages of, 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 of the war. Yes, of course there will be changes. Uh, I mean, uh, Russian society is, is dynamically developing. Uh, and uh, all I can say is that this will be not a repetition of Gorbachev because this is a very different uh, situation and uh, um, you know the market economy, the global integration, um, um, uh, WTO. By the way, um, you know that's part of uh, Russia's day daily life, and, and that will be very different from the world that uh, was really a very different economy uh, 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 under 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 Gorbachev. Whereas, whereas Russia has had it. I mean, that's that's a big uh, that's a big question, like the Russian. I like the Russian soul, um, but uh, but I, but I think uh, there there is a real um, uh, I would I would say there is a real danger, and there are um, certain certain forces in the Russian politics and in Russian society that lobby a very autarkic and a nation-state kind of mentality that. Uh, you know, we, we need to just get back to history. Russia is a nation state. We need to sort of um, repeat the cycle. Uh, I would like to reference what Professor Levin has said. I mean, it, it, it's really a, a, a good recipe for genocide and, and must scale on a continental scale uh, if you do that. And unfortunately, the international climate is doing exactly that. It forces and, and, and conjures and, and, and helps and aids this kind of mentality of you know, autarkic, independent, sealed off um, Russia as an island, you know, that's sort of, that's, uh, that's the metaphor. But, uh, you know, there are other forces that, uh, that are there, so it's a competition right now. All right, okay. Oh, you, you're going to do the soul, thank God for that. All right, yes, okay, all right. What's, what's happening next, yes. I mean, I didn't completely understand, understand the question, but I, un, I took it to mean uh, to what extent Western military 
policy and, and the sort of economic quarantine of the Soviet Union, the pressure, uh, helped uh, to bring about the collapse of the Union. This was the policy pushed uh, by the person I taught for at Harvard, Richard Pipes, and he certainly believed it. Um, I am myself a bit more sceptical. I do not think the Soviet leadership needed to go in for the kind of radical reforms it went in for in the 1980s, certainly not for the kind of radical political reforms. But it is interesting that, you know, the first thing we did when I got on Thatcher's committee was brief uh, for her first meeting with Gorbachev, and she asked us to look at what was happening in China and see to what extent she could talk to Gorbachev about that. Well, one of the problems of trying to use Chinese models for Russia was that Russia by now had no peasantry, really. A second was that any you know, special economic zone was likely to become an ethno-national state in embryo, as to some extent happened under Khrushchev. The third, quite simply, was that the, Soviet, uh, the West would never accept the kind of policy towards the Soviet Union, the great enemy in the Cold War, which it accepted vis-a-vis China and which is now coming home to roost, in other words, basically opening up and allowing China to enter the, you know, the world economy on an equal basis. So you were in a different kind of setup. No, if I was going to actually think about what brought the Soviet Union down, it was an autonomous policy of Gorbachev's, admittedly, as always, within international constraints, which miscued. Uh, which miscued partly because of the enormous inherent problems, but also partly because of the naivety of the top leadership. Um, I mean, I sympathize with some of the Russians who, you know, point a finger at him. He, hmm. But uh, as to where Russia is heading now, you know, in, in a minute... Uh, <laughs> in terms of what needs to be done, you, to my mind... You've got to get medium-scale business going, small-scale business going. That does require a greater degree of legal order than they have at the moment. You've got to remain completely neutral in any emerging Chinese-American confrontation, but play both sides. 20th century Russia smashed itself to bits, firstly against the Germans and then against the Anglo-Saxons. Time out is, you know, the rule there. And what will happen will matter, will depend enormously on what happens in the outside world. You know, um, if the West recovers, if America reinvents itself as it has done in the past, if it, you know, the basic liberal democratic model that modernity, wealth, etc., requires liberal democracy proves true or looks truer than the alternative then I think Russia will, in time, unless we have straight-out devastating international conflict, which I think we well may, uh, then Russia will probably you know, follow the same line. But if, on the contrary, as I think is likely, we move back to the world of the two world wars um, under the impact, apart from anything else, of the kind of forces which undermine the pre-1914 empires and now global ecological crisis then that is going to mean not just in Russia but in elsewhere that the logic is going to move towards authoritarianism um, and often a pretty nasty version of authoritarianism. So, you know, these questions are all connected and if I knew the answer, I'd be a great deal wiser than I am. Mm -hmm.
think I've been left with the Russian soul, which is a bit, <laughs> it's a bit difficult for me, partly because I haven't got one, and partly because I started my scholarship Good thing if you're head the of the history of department. Catherine the Great, who <laughs> hadn't got one either. So, <laughs> I think perhaps the only thing I, I would say is that I, I, mean, I, I spend, spend a lot of my time as a historian wondering you know, why things worked out as they did and why often they, they didn't work. And, and I think that I mean, you do then start to look at uh, sort of cultural perceptions, at orthodoxy, at social relationships, at attitudes towards law, at attitudes towards rule. But I'm afraid terribly prosaically and, and non-Russian and non-Solvely, I, I think actually lack of roads mattered more than soul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really was sort of size and communication and time. Uh, certainly in the, in the 18th century, through really to the onset of railways, which determined in so many things, so many areas. So I'm, I'm sorry to end it in such a sort of non-ideological way. Well, <laughs> we, and ending we must. Um, I'd like us all to thank the panel and also thank the audience for their questions. And we can have a